Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. It is Tuesday, the 19th of November. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBerge. Um, up this morning, first off, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Uh, he and I are going to discuss the impeachment proceeding. We have not touched on this for several days, and uh, it is, you know, it is frankly the biggest news story in the United States of America right now. And so at issue is America's Foreign policy at issue is how we function together um, as as people, citizens of one nation, um, and how the process is unfolding actually does matter. And so uh, Dr. Smith is able to bring us up to date on it um, in a way that I think is particularly helpful as from his perspective on not only American politics but constitutional law. Uh, his primary research interest is the field of religion and American politics. So a good, good person for us to talk with about this particular matter. Before we get there, let me remind you that it's Tuesday. And so uh, last week we talked about Tasty Tuesday. I have been encouraged to maybe consider it Taste and See Tuesday. So let us, um, let us consider how today we might taste and see that the Lord is good and how we might help other people taste and see that the Lord is good. Develop those kinds of appetites that we have talked about with Karen Swallow, Swallow Pryor, that we have talked about um, just, who did we talk with yesterday, Paul? And we we are on the same subject about developing the right kind of taste for things. Music, it was the taste in music. Yeah, who was that? I'm I know, having a mental blank. You know, oh, I, it was Adam Carrington, yes, which right. was an unusual you're... conversation for us to have with yeah. him, right? So we've talked about cultivating the right kind of taste or appetite for Good literature, good art, good music. And then you can't actually have that conversation unless you know what is transcendentally good. Like, how are we going to determine what is good if we don't know the one who is good? And so let me just encourage you on Taste and See Tuesday to not only uh, taste and see that the Lord is good yourself, but to help other people taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us be cultivating those right kinds of appetites. Uh, I have a friend who uses SAVOR as an acronym uh, in uh, in his spiritual walk of faith, and I'll just admit, I can't remember what the acronym all stands for, but SAVOR the Savior sticks in my mind. And so uh, maybe you can work out an acronym for me and communicate that with me at 877-933-2484. You can always text me on that line during the show, 877-933-2484. This morning's, uh, this morning's thought uh, what would the acronym SAVOR, S-A-V-O-R, what would those letters stand for if we wanted to savor the Savior this morning? All right, up next, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to have an update on impeachment, and then we're going to talk about what's at stake in terms of U.S. foreign policy and what's at stake in terms of getting anything done legislatively while impeachment uh, is ongoing. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is uh, an associate professor of political science, the director of the Center for Political Studies at Cedarville University. He teaches courses in American politics, constitutional law, research methodology, data analysis, uh, and his primary research interest is in the field of religion and American politics. So he makes a great conversation partner on the topics, um, well, fr- frankly, ha- anything happening inside the Beltway in Washington. And one of the things uh, topping the news inside the Beltway is impeachment proceedings. So, Dr. Smith, give us an update on where things stand now. Um, and then it's it, it occurs to me that the president is also facing some other legal challenges as well in some courts across the country. So maybe we could have both of those conversations um, in tandem. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the impeachment proceedings are certainly unfolding. Um, <clears throat> I think we're, we're sort of at a turning point, whereas this week we're going to start hearing from witnesses who have more of a firsthand knowledge of what took place. So today's witnesses, for example, two of them were on the phone call, the infamous phone call be- between President Trump and President Zelensky. So they'll be able to talk about that phone call in some detail. Um, and I think it's it's sort of a, an important week for Republicans because they're going to have to figure out whether their defenses of President Trump are going to hold up. Um, they've made a lot of different efforts to try to defend the president. I think they've been pretty successful on the whole so far, at least politically speaking. Uh, but I think the testimony this week is it's going to put things front and center in a way that I think is going to be challenging for them. Uh, and then can the Democrats, of course, can they begin to create a compelling narrative uh, that will maybe be persuasive to that big chunk of people who are still – in the middle, sort of moderate people who don't have a real strong opinion on this, who are in a little bit more of a wait and see mode than uh, most partisans are. So when we talk about the witnesses who we are going to hear from this week, uh, right. you know, I am I am not a um, courtroom strategist kind of person, um, but it, it does occur to me that it, it's possible that the American public was paying really close attention on the very first day. And maybe right. as the you know, as the number of witnesses grows and the number of names that we have to learn grows, um, that our attention span for such things wanes. And so just in terms of strategy, why would you not have led with your most compelling witness? It's a good question. It really is. It's a good question. I think um, you can you can certainly consider that in this day and age, people are sort of in a, a Netflix mindset, you know, if that first episode doesn't compel me to binge watch this thing, then I'm done. I'm checked out and I'm going to move on to something else. So, you know, did they really do the right thing, the Democrats, by having witnesses up front that sort of set a big stage, that tried to put everything in context, that tried to lay out sort of American interests and Ukrainian interests and Russian interests and how there was conflict there? And that opened it up to this criticism that none of these people have firsthand knowledge of what actually took place. None of them witnessed anything. None of them really heard anything. And again, I think that was a very effective uh, response by the Republicans. And I think this week it'll challenge that. But uh, I think I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I, I'm not sure we're the same people that we were, say, 40 years ago, uh, plus 40 years ago, when uh, the, the Watergate trial was un, un, was was taking place. You know, those things were sort of wall-to-wall television, must-see TV. They were viewed as compelling by people viewing it in that context. I'm not sure we're quite there right now. You know, I'm not sure we're really willing to sit down and listen to three, four, or five hours of testimony. You know, one other distinction that we might make um, when we're talking about Watergate, um, there was this, like, really obvious criminal act. I mean, we can all 
like, you know, you can't break into my house and take stuff out of my right. uh, out of my right. filing cabinet. Like, right. It's yeah. and so um there was this really obvious criminal act. And it's just not that obvious today that um that certainly that anything criminal took place. And and there is this really widespread wide spectrum of understanding in terms of whether or not anything that is wrong took place. And I think this gets into a conversation about what our what are our compelling international interests. And because we do think so often just about the United States of America, somehow we think we are still isolated and insulated from the rest of the world. We fail to see sometimes that we are a part of a global community. Um, and there's really no escaping that. The world is, I mean, the world really is small. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I, I think for a lot of Americans, Ukraine is simply a country on the other side of the world that we don't know much about, probably don't care much about, and we probably don't understand how that country connects to Russia and how Russian interests are different in Ukraine than our interests are in Ukraine and how there's a real conflict there. I don't think most Americans, for example, would see Ukraine as really the front lines of our conflict with Russia at the moment. I think they view Ukraine as just sort of a country that we help Occasionally, they have difficulties with Russia, uh, but it's a lot more serious than that. I mean, Ukraine is really on the front line, and they're in a very vulnerable position. And I think you're right. That gets to the question, really, of how do we think about President Trump's behavior in Ukraine? I think if you understand their vulnerability, Ukraine's vulnerability to Russia, the president's actions appear to be a little bit more abusive. If you look at Ukraine as sort of this neutral entity and the president's just trying to use some leverage to get something done, then it probably doesn't appear all that abusive. It appears more like business as usual. And I I think you're right about the fact that there's no obvious crime here. And that's going to cause a lot of people to kind of scratch their heads exactly about what what is or is not impeachable. I think the best argument the Democrats have is that the president has abused his power. But you can abuse your power without breaking the law. But I'm not sure the Democrats are really making that argument. I'm not sure they're really overtly saying, here's why it's abusive, here why we, here's why we think that it's impeachable, and here's, you know, sort of lay out a compelling argument. I'm not sure that they're, they're quite there yet. And so I don't think they've made a good political case uh, for impeachment, at least not yet. Well, and I think the question for many of us will be, um, are, we, are we going to give them the time of day to make the argument now? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I know that in radio, I have about 15 seconds at the top of every segment to right. uh, keep, a li- keep a listener right here. And after that 15 seconds, they have pushed a button and they have moved on. Um, and so thank you for being a compelling conversationalist, keeping our, keeping our <laughs> listeners with us this morning uh, in, their, in their drive to work and everything else that's going on in life. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith and I from Cedarville University are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Um, I'm going to I'm going to ask him about some other challenges that the president is facing uh, in courts across the country related to uh, related to other matters. Um, And then maybe um, we will speculate how that is affecting uh, the president as as a person, uh, how we would feel if we were in the same circumstance. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. He's the director of the Center for Political Studies there. Let's not, let's talk about other things that the president is facing. Um, I will just admit to you that if people were 
um, you know, having open hearings about conversations that I was having. I felt like I was being misrepresented. I didn't feel like I had representation in the room. I didn't feel like the process was fair. That would eat at me. Um, It would be hard for me to do my job effectively. But then if I've also uh, got other challenges going on, I'm in I mean, I am not, but my attorneys on my behalf are in court across the country related to other things, other aspects of my personal life and my financial life. Um, It would be more than just a little wearisome and stressful. Yeah, there's no question about it. I don't know if you saw recently, President Clinton was asked about these issues as president, you know, as someone who went through impeachment himself and went through legal controversy and what advice he would have for President Trump. And his advice was just simply to work. You know, you work and you try to let your lawyers handle everything and you try to stay on the job, stay dealing with the details of government and let them handle all the legal challenges because you can't deal with all of it at once. I'm not sure President Trump is wired that way. You know, it seems like he is emotionally involved. His Twitter feed is clearly involved and he's responding to these things sort of in real time in a way that suggests that uh, it is kind of wearing on him in a lot of ways. You know, whether you're talking about his tax returns whether the possibility they're going to be made public, whether you're talking about uh, imminent domain and building the wall and all the controversy connected to that. I mean, the president uh, is familiar with courts right now. And in some ways, that's not unusual. I and mean, presidents are frequently at the center of a lot of legal um, argumentation while they're in office. But President Trump, certainly more so than others. So um, there, there are a number of people lined up on the other side of the aisle who would very much like the job, which, you know, the more you see the job, you wonder to yourself, why would anybody want that job? But that's OK. Um, there are more than 20 people vying for the Democratic nomination. I'm wondering two things. First of all, some interesting characters have now jumped into the race. Um, Deval Patrick, I find actually a pretty compelling uh, candidate. Um, but there are – it also occurs to me there are a number of people who, because of the impeachment proceedings, they actually have to be on Capitol Hill and cannot be on the campaign trail. I'm kind of wondering sure. how these two things intersect with one another. Yeah, I mean, we could be looking at a trial in the Senate uh, early next year, and if that happens, then all the senators who are Democrats running for the presidency right now would basically be taken off the campaign trail just weeks before the Iowa caucuses kick off. Um, And I don't know if the Democrats necessarily hatch the strategy thinking through what that timeline might do to their presidential election chances, especially at the moment where... Um, non-senators seem to be gaining some traction. Someone like Pete Buttigieg is gaining some traction. Certainly Bloomberg and Patrick jumping into the race are going to shake things up. Um, it, it is going to change the dynamics, I think, uh, quite a bit if this thing unfolds. It also would give the Senate, I think, some incentive to try to get it over quickly, at least for the Democrats. But, of course, the Republicans are going to be in charge of that trial in the Senate. They'll have a pretty, pretty strong incentive to sort of string things out. Uh, I kind of agree with your first point, though, I don't, you know, the old joke is if you want to be president, you're probably disqualified from the office. You know, it it takes a certain kind of person to want to become president of the United States and to jump into this sort of controversy. Uh, And I'm I'm 100 percent confident that I'm not that kind of person. But I'm thankful there are at least some people who are willing to do it. (laughs) Okay, what uh, what, if anything, do you know? I know this is like a spring question, but. What, if anything, do you know and you think we should know about the latest candidate to enter the race, Deval Patrick? Uh, it's, he's an interesting uh, candidate because there were sort of rumblings around uh, former Governor Patrick uh, connecting him to someone like Barack Obama, that he has sort of this charisma 
uh, these uh, men, uh, Obama is a mentor to him, and that he was going to be kind of an obvious presidential candidate at some point. He decided not to get in the campaign, at least until recently. And I think some people are a little bit surprised about that. Um, he's going to be interesting for the Democrats because he worked for Bain Capital, which is the same uh, investment banking company that Mitt Romney worked a lot with, and he was criticized by for Democrats for being involved in, in Bain. And so it'll be interesting to see how they handle his connection to Bain. Will his wealth from Bain be a, a major talking point? And at the same time, you have a multi-multi-billionaire jumping into the race from Mayor Bloomberg. And so they both kind of put this question front and center, I think, in some ways. Uh, the Democratic Party is in the midst of a pretty big argument over wealth and how to handle wealth and who wealth belongs to and how the government interacts with wealth. We're going to have two candidates that are going to make this issue, I think, uh, pretty prominent real quickly. I think I think Patrick is a, a compelling candidate. I think he will find some, some interest, especially if Joe Biden continues to decline uh, in his support among African-Americans. You know, at that particular intersection, and maybe this will tee this up for our next conversation, this conversation about wealth, I, I think that as Christians, we need help understanding um, capitalism and socialism. Right. Yep. Um, we we need help understanding the words that are being used and what they mean in our current context. Because I think when we use the term socialism, even today here in the United States, we don't mean what it, you know, what the term uh, means in in its origin, nor uh, hopefully what it has meant um, in places over time. But it's really hard to escape those examples. Um, and so what do we mean when we use those words? Can capitalism be redeemed? Is there a redeemed version of capitalism? I mean, we can point to we can point to negative effects, but we can also we can also right. point to, um, you know, great things that have happened because wealth has been generated through the engine of capitalism. And so maybe we could you and I could talk about that the next time um, you come on. Just just what is this intersection um, at because this is the conversation I think for the 2020 uh, campaign cycle, and this will yeah. be this will be language that we have to better understand. Um, and uh, and I'd appreciate your perspective on that. No, I look forward to it. I think that'd be a great conversation. A lot of Americans are just using these labels without really understanding what they mean or where they come from. And then as believers, we use them without thinking through the implications for our faith and what Scripture might have to say about things like property and wealth and. Uh, like many other things, I think, though, we're the victims of really poor education when it comes to economics, as well as when it comes to government. And so I think we're starting to see the ripple effects of that poor education at lower levels. And now when you look into uh, the electorate and you see a fair bit of misunderstanding of those terms, then I think we're starting to see some of the consequences of that poor education. All right. Well, fantastic. We'll tee that up for the next time we talk. Thank you, as always, for being with us. That's Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. He's the director of, of the Center for Political Studies there. You can find him at cedarville.edu. We'll be right back. So we can become discouraged over many things. I mean, we live in a 24-hour news cycle. We get reminders on social media um, of all kinds of, of tragedy and heartache around the world. I think it is very easy to fall into what I will describe as an abyss of discouragement. It is easy to be anxious over many things. And yet as believers, we know, we know, we know, um, we know better. In fact, we know best. We know ultimate good. And yet it is very, very difficult to um, 
to sort of retain our our anchor hold on all of that. We we fall victim to believing the lies of the enemy. We fall victim um, to discouragement. And so up next, Pastor Jason Meyer, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Bethlehem Baptist Church in the Twin Cities. Um, He's going to be here to share with us his new book, Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We love to hear from you. Uh, We love to hear from you on the text line here during the show, 877-933-2484. We love to hear from you via email. You can always reach out to me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. And we also uh, appreciate when you share what we're doing with others. And the easiest way to do that is to uh, go to MyFaithRadio.com, go to the Mornings with Carmen page, find something that is encouraging and inspiring to you and share it with someone else. Introduce this ministry, be an ambassador of this ministry um, to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends, to people across the country and around the world. I mean, this is one of the really cool things about, let's say, a podcast or an article that's posted at MyFaithRadio.com. It's easy for you um, to share with somebody, you know, halfway around the world or halfway across the country. I know that there are people with whom I am in contact who I I like, I don't see, like I don't get to, I can't get together with them, Um, but we can share an article. We can talk back and forth about a podcast. Um, We can mutually encourage one another in our life of faith and and therefore I believe build up the body of Christ in the world. So let me encourage you to go to MyFaithRadio.com, find a resource that you find um, interesting, compelling, inspiring, and share it with someone else uh, and become an ambassador of this ministry. We'll be right back. Truth be told, I'm not crazy about housework. But I do love deep cleaning my home in the spring and the fall, opening up the windows, turning on some tunes, really having fun with it. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, you can do the same thing with your finances once or twice a year. Here's some tips to help you know how to deep clean up your money house. First, get organized. Make sure you have all your financial documents stored in one place. Then think about and plan for some of those major life events, like college for your kids and retirement. Prepare for the unexpected so you or your loved ones, they don't have any unnecessary financial burdens. And make sure you set aside funds for giving to others. It's simple. But if you feel overwhelmed, ask a financial professional for help and ask God for the wisdom to make the best decisions. So open the windows and do some deep cleaning, and you'll be one step closer to living a more content, confident, and generous life. Joining me now, Pastor Jason Meyer from Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis. Um, he is, he's a pastor. He is also an author and he's here to share with us today, a new book called Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. Jason, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. So glad to be with you. So you're sitting there in studio with, um, with one of your sheep. I am. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fun, right? We love Paul. Oh, yes. Well, we love Jason, so there you go. 
<laughs> okay, so see, we're going to mutually build up the body of Christ today. That's right. Um, I feel I feel like that is um, no small part of what this conversation is about. Uh, when you when you talk about discouragement, and this book is about discouragement, we should tell people that. But people experience discouragement um, every day in a myriad of ways, and you address that, you unearth that, you dig that out. Um, but then you also give us this substantial, hope filled glorious expectation. And so can we can we start at the end and then back up into all of the causes for discouragement that we find today and why it's such a lie and such a ploy of the enemy to rob us not only of our joy but our identity in Christ? Let's back up into that. Let's start with the where the book ends. Let's start with the expectations that we often our expectations often fall short of the real glory of God and the reality set before us. So, can you start there? Yeah, I I think one of the biggest realities that we face is that discouragement really is a plague and we assume that it it has to just defeat us. We have to grin and bear it and we don't realize that the the foundational truth of the Christian life is that God is working all things for good. He's not done. So one of the things that happened for me was being able to watch U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis be built and realizing it started with a massive hole in the ground. And one of our pastors one day said, hey, how does everybody like the new stadium? And everybody laughed because it looked ridiculous. And he said, yeah, that's right. It's not done. If this was the end product, we would really have questions for the architect And yet, in the Bible, we see again and again the same truth. God's not done, right? He wasn't done when Joseph was in prison, Jeremiah was in the pit, Jonah was in the fish, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, Daniel was in the lion's den, Pharaoh was oppressing Israelites, Haman plotting against Mordecai, Herod killing infants, Saul persecuting Christians. He wasn't done when Goliath taunted the armies of Israel, Jezebel killed the prophets of Israel. Babylonians destroyed the temple of Israel. In all of these cases, in every page of Scripture, we see God's not done. And at some point, we have to say to ourselves, how much more will it take for us to believe that in our own lives? God says it. We see it in Scripture on every page, and we're just called to believe it. God isn't done in our lives wherever we're at, and we know the best is yet to come. Amen. And it's the lie of the enemy that um, has us even momentarily, circumstantially convinced that God's not here, God's not paying attention, God's not good, God's not powerful. And those are the lies that lead us down into this, you know, negative vortex of discouragement. Um, Talk about the lies that, that we believe that sort of set us up for this absolutely blinded, false perspective that we have um, on life. Yeah. One of the central insights as I was writing the book that really just excited me was to see that discouragement really is a liar. It tells sophisticated lies that are half-truths because discouragement feels so natural, feels so real and inevitable, and in a sense, it's right. It's true discouragement happens because there's all kinds of reasons to lose heart in a fallen world. There's all kinds of reasons for that. And you see it in the Bible. You see it with Elisha's servant. 
when they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha's servant says, what, what shall we do? And Elisha prays that his eyes would be opened. And his eyes are opened to see that the, the hills are aflame. They're alive with all of these uh, heavenly hosts and fiery chariots and heavenly armies. And Elisha says, those who are for us are more than those who are against us. And I find that the dynamics of discouragement are perfectly on display there. Uh, he was He had an army of reasons, literally an army of reasons to lose heart. He could see that what is against me is greater than me. And that's always going to happen with discouragement. But we have to have our eyes opened to see that the God who is for us is greater than all that is against us. So it's really a fight for sight, a fight to see God, a fight to see his glory, his promises, his power, and to know that he's at work and that we're not left as an orphan to fend for ourselves. And so those sophisticated lies that say, this is what's against you and that's all that there is, is what the Bible confronts again and again. The book is Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The author is Jason Meyer. We have five copies uh, to give away. I know that your appetite for this is now fully whetted, and you, uh, you are wondering how to get a copy. We have simplified the process. You simply need to text the word BOOK, no exclamation point, no other information, just the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Um, if you if you add anything, if you add the reason that we should send you the book and not all the other people who are going to ask for the book, um, then the text won't actually be processed. You, it's just the word book, no ancillary information, to 877-933-2484. Or if you just feel compelled to tell me lots of other stuff, you can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Don't lose heart. Jason, um, you actually lead off. Uh, well, maybe not quite lead off, but there's this great story in here about um, the Hannah High School cross-country team and, and how it develops this picture of the body of Christ and, and how that helps you see Hebrews uh, 12. Talk with us about, uh, 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 tell us that story. Yeah, so um, back when I used to read Sports Illustrated as a kid, I read about this story with uh, Ben Komen and uh, it it was about a guy that always finished last and how he everybody came to watch him run. So, of course, my interest was piqued, and I said, what's, what's going on with this guy? So Ben Komen had cerebral palsy. So this condition caused him to fall constantly because he didn't lift his feet high enough when he ran, and he tripped on everything, and he then fell hard because his brain couldn't send signals fast enough to get his arms underneath him to cushion his fall. So after every race, Ben would just be bruised and bloodied, but he never quit. He always finished last, but he always finished. So people in the stands, as grown men, would just break down and weep while watching this display of perseverance. And Ben's teammates, after they finished, would go back out on the course and run the last 10 minutes of the race with him. The girls' team would join, runners from the opposing team would join, and they would all finish the race together. And I thought, what a, what a picture of Hebrews 12, 2, where we're supposed to run 
the race set before us with endurance. But Hebrews says, let us run the race. We're not doing it alone. We're, we're not entering this race in an isolated, insular way. We're not supposed to face discouragement alone. As we fall and as we get back up, we need the body of Christ to run with us, to encourage us, to remind us that we're not alone. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate um, in the book is when you talk about our our prideful tendency to try to handle discouragement on our own, to either hide it from others or to act like we can bear it, uh, bear it up, you know, all on our own and in sort of our American individualism, and that that is just really not God's design for us, nor um, you know, nor a faithful reliance um, on on Christ, um, who really does want to shoulder the burden. Um, we just we just have to be willing to let him to let him do what he very much wants to do. All right, Jason uh, Meyer and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. We have to take a brief break. The book is Don't Lose Heart. If you would like to enter in uh, to the drawing for one of the five copies that we have in studio from Baker Publishing, you can just text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Pastor Jason Meyer, the book is Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. Um, it's perfectly gift size. Um, sometimes a book is uh, is long and um, cumbersome, like, like it like feels like I wouldn't hand it to another person. This not only feels size-wise like I would be comfortable handing it to another person, um, it's it's hardback. It's it's that gift size book. So um, if you're wondering, is this a book that I should invest in in order that I can not only receive this for myself, um, but that I could actually pass this this genuine gift, um, the gift of encouragement in in a world of great discouragement? Um, then let me just go ahead and say, yeah, it's that kind of book. Um, so Jason, let's talk about um, the the weighing of assets and liabilities or the weighing of, well, this is kind of going well, but this is not going well. Why do we do that? Like describe that, that tendency to us and then help us uh, weigh that weigh things differently than we're currently weighing them. Yeah. One of the points I make in the book is that we check the wrong scale. Often we use a scale of our own making where we say, okay, this is what's against me. And now we tabulate, this is what's for me, meaning this is what I have. These are my resources. And so it's, it's easy at one level to do kind of a hope calculus and say, if, if I'm facing this, but I have this much and it's more, then I feel like I can handle it. It's manageable. I know how to, how to address this. But so often the case is these things that are against us are actually greater than us. And we find that our own resources are depleted and we find that, that we're very aware of our inabilities. And so when we get overwhelmed, that's when we get discouraged. And in those moments, we're checking the wrong scale. Because in Isaiah 40, God pulls out all the stops with these discouraged Israelites because they are overpowered by the great nation of Babylon. And God keeps telling them, to check the scale. He says, yes, compared to the Babylonians, you're insignificant, but compared to all the nations of the world, to me, they're dust on the scales. They're, 
the I sit enthroned above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are grasshoppers. They're a drop in the bucket. They're less than nothing. And so in these moments, what we're supposed to do is check the right scale, see that God is greater than all that's against us, and not just in prayer tell our God how great our problems are, but tell our problems how great our God is, to resize the situation. We tend to kind of blow up the problems that are against us and make them seem bigger than they are, and we shrink God down to size when he feels distant and we assume that he's he's not near and that he's not present and that he's not greater than all that's against us. Wow, if we could make that one um, exchange... I mean, how different would our lives be? Like if, if we could literally, if we could make that one perspective exchange, if I could begin um, not, not feeling overwhelmed by the weight of, of the world or the weight of the circumstances, but I could actually like take into account, well, the weight of the glory of God, like, wow. Um, or if I could be whelmed by grace instead of overwhelmed, by circumstances, like I think that's the exchange you're inviting us to make, and that is, that's critical. Um, how am I weighing things? What scale am I using? Um, well, and then maybe we just make a, a nice segue here to um, that's going to require the scales falling off my eyes and my really seeing things from God's perspective. I think the reality that we face is can be kind of summed up in a story. Uh, I preached Isaiah 40 one time at our church, and there was a family that came in afterwards and said that uh, their their only child had cancer, needed surgery. They were totally overwhelmed, of course, because you feel so out of control. You feel like, what can I do? There's, I can't fix this. This is beyond my ability to handle. And in the sermon, they heard about God saying, I hold the waters in the hollow of my hand. And if we, if we measure the waters, there's 332.5 million cubic miles of water in the world. And each cubic mile is 1.1 trillion gallons of water. So I tried to use my imagination a little bit and say, how much water can I hold in the hollow of my hand? I started with a, with a tablespoon and it spilled all over the floor. And then I tried to do it over the sink and ended up with, I couldn't even fit a tablespoon of water in my hand. I, then I went to a teaspoon finally and almost could hold a teaspoon. And this is God saying, I hold all the waters in the hollow of my hand. That, that couple heard that. And every time they faced discouragement, felt overwhelmed, they had a signal to each other, a hand signal. They just opened up their palm to remind each other God has this, and that hand that holds all the waters is also nail-scarred and says, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Not only can I, I will. I'll never, never forsake you. So those are the promises that we have to lean upon, stand upon in these moments of discouragement, or we're just a sitting duck to discouragement. Um, I I love how practical the book is. I'm turning um, to page 136 where you talk about casting your cares on the Father. Let me just read this page or part of it. 
Anxiety can sometimes be a form of arrogance. Pride tells us to carry our cares and our own uh, on our own instead of casting them on the Father. That's why the Bible says we humble ourselves by casting our cares on Him, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Bring your cares to Him in prayer. God's peace is the solution for an overactive, anxious heart and mind. Look at how Paul described this practice in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, when I think about not losing heart, Jason, this is actually the passage to which my heart runs. Um, this, this knowledge that God is guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus, how could I ever lose heart if, if he's the one who now possesses it? Like, right? And yeah, so I, right. I, I, love, I love what you've done. The book is Don't Lose Heart, Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The author is Jason Meyer. Um, Jason, thank you so very much. Is there um, is there one one uh, social media place where people can um, can connect with you? Yeah, my Twitter handle is uh, We Preach Christ. Amen. All right, on Twitter, We Preach Christ. The book is Don't Lose Heart: Gospel Hope for the Discouraged Soul. The author is Jason Meyer. Uh, you can also find him at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. We'll be right back. Let us not then be discouraged. Uh, Let us be encouraged in Christ this day. Uh, How are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Have you had your daily bread this morning from the Word of God? Let's be sure we're in the Word before we get out there into the world. We'll be right back with another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.